Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. I used, my favorite pet when I was growing up was an alligator. They gave me a baby alligator. Of course, I lived down in South Florida where there was alligator wrestling and you know, things like that were going on. And uh, I got very close to this alligator. Uh, I, and I used to put him on a leash and walk around and nobody would mess with me, you know, with my pet alligator on the leash. And, I used to, he used to give me drishti. Have you ever looked in an alligator's eyes? I mean, it's quite something. Imagining what you are to him, you know, which I found out regularly because he would bite my finger. And I mean, you couldn't pry his teeth out of you know the finger afterwards. It was very heavy duty. They're not designed for compassion. Uh, but he kept growing. At first, I had him in a little aquarium. He outgrew that. You know, I used to let him uh, swim in the bathtub. Uh, and he got very large and, and a little bit dangerous. Uh, I think one day he was in the bathtub and my sister went in to use the bathroom. He got very freaked out. I think he was, came out and was attacking her. So I was sort of ordered to uh, get rid of the alligator. But before I could do that, I had him out in the yard one day and he, he got away and he went under the house. But he was, you know, he was about this big by then. And uh, nobody wanted to go in after him, including me. You know. <laughs> Because there wasn't enough space to really, you know, like wrestle him. You have to turn him over, you know, and pet his uh, belly in order to kind of hypnotize him and uh, bring him safely out. Well, anyway, I don't know what ever happened to him, but uh, he probably ate people in the neighborhood. You know. There were a few strange disappearances, which is a subject we have to talk about, disappearance. But <clears throat> that's a whole other matter. But everything in the, uh, in the dream field, the world, because it is a dream, everything ha is uh, extremely significant. And I think people don't uh, realize the significance of these uh, very important, especially the enduring symbolic forms uh, that if they are correctly interpreted, of course, they give you a wealth of information. So I remember one day when I discovered, after studying a number of different uh, religions and mythologies, that uh, each one was a chapter that was intended to be uh, in a book, which was a, uh, an instruction manual on how to build a quantum supercomputer but that it was coded in such a form that no one would uh, expect that that was its, uh, its purpose. <clears throat> but you had to include all of the religions it, to get a clear picture of it. You had to include Zoroastrianism and the Egyptian, uh, ancient Egyptians uh, religions and the uh, Akkadian and Sumerian to get a, a more accurate uh, picture. And I found that uh, very few people were uh, understanding that. Uh, for example, the, um, the perennial philosophy people, whether of the Aldous Huxley type or the Fritjof uh, Schuon type, were always looking at the sameness, the, the similarities of the different religions rather than the, the differences. And of course, because each one has its own particular function, it's the differences that are what are significant because each religion is a game. And if you understand von Neumann's game theory, then you begin to know how to metabolize the information that is carried by each one of these instruction sets to deal with different levels and different dimensions of this phenomenal dream field, which of course is a multidimensional game that we're all involved in. And why do people uh, tend to ride crocodiles in the first place? You know, why would anyone be tempted to do that? Because you do have to cross the river, and the river is very deep. 
And so if a crocodile is the only thing you got to get across on, you're going to do that because you don't want to drown, right? And it's very easy to drown in the deep water of consciousness. And so whatever will keep you on the surface level where you feel safe and you feel like, oh, I can see the shore, I can locate myself, I know, uh, you know how to manage uh, this situation. Uh, even if you're fooling yourself, you prefer to have something like that than to have to swim across and be afraid, well, halfway through, what if I get too tired and uh, I can't swim the rest of the way, right? And you can't touch bottom. Well, that, of course, happens when you begin to uh, swim out into deep consciousness, which is why many uh, beings who go into the depths literally become psychotic. And that's, that's the danger, psychosis. The only way to protect yourself from that danger is if you are uh, holding on very tightly, not to a crocodile, but to the self that is uh, uh, unsinkable, but at the same time contains the infinite and therefore gives you access to the entirety of consciousness in a way that remains safe because there is no ego trying to appropriate that information and use in a limited perspectival uh, mode for its own uh, self-aggrandizement. But as soon as the ego comes in, because it is a crocodile, it's not compassionate, it's not gaining knowledge to serve, knowledge is power to uh, the ego, and, uh, and power corrupts. And so uh, if, if the will to power of the ego is behind the spiritual quest, then what you see is what has happened to all too many gurus in this postmodern period of uh, having been corrupted by the few crumbs of higher knowledge that they got. And that's unfortunately a very common uh, situation in all the religions. And, all of the, uh, the various structures of knowledge, academic, scientific, uh, whatever. So uh, this, uh, this corruption of, of knowledge. But what is it that we want more than anything in life? I think if you asked most people, well, maybe not most people, some people would answer, I would like as much intelligence as possible. How many people would like that? Is there anybody who wants to be more intelligent? Okay, because that's what this is about. And so if you're not interested in increasing your intelligence, then what's the point of studying these things? But the increase of intelligence, if it is lopsidedly used in the service of an ego, is going to lead to uh, karmic problems much worse than if you didn't have uh, that uh, extra bit of knowledge and uh, uh, intelligent capacity to use it. But this is the whole story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, right? Who, very famous archetypal fairy tale of, of the, the apprentice who learns uh, how to do some uh, magic uh, tricks and, uh, uh, and uh, kind of like uh, those Harry Potter movies, uh, ends up creating monsters that, that can't be controlled which is the Frankenstein story and the whole archetypes of the modern world uh, that, that uh, are now uh, causing us to reap the whirlwind. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that we don't uh, still need that knowledge, that understanding, but we need it uh, in the purest form possible, in an incorruptible form, and that's why We've got to get off the crocodile before we can even begin uh, to, uh, to swim in the deep waters. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, today what I would like to do is uh, give a more definite understanding of the, the world as a dream field and how that functions in, in a, a practical manner and gives us, uh, let's say, a leg up on the interpretation precognitively of phenomena that will enable us to, uh, to function more intelligently 
because we can uh, teleologically see beyond the curve of the horizon and, uh, in a sense, time travel, both past and future, okay, which is one of the, the names for God, uh, Srikal Darshi in, uh, in Sanskrit, the, uh, the seer of the three aspects of time. And this is a, a very important uh, city, if you will. Uh, but before that, <clears throat> what, I, what I want to do in practical terms is to compare the Heart Sutra and uh, the game of pool. Okay, because I think these two represent the archetypal polarities that are most relevant to us. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to start with the Heart Sutra because the game of pool is more complex. <laughs> and, and the Heart Sutra uh, gets down to basics. You see, the Heart Sutra, unlike most uh, religious texts, uh, it gives us the essence. Most religious texts come in the form of parables. Now, what is a parable? It is a parabola. And if you know the mathematical form of a parabola, it seems like you're pointing one way at one thing, but then it turns out you're pointing back at something very different, right? So it's like the boomerang effect. So uh, religious speech, if it's speech that contains knowledge, is parabolic, okay? So we have to be able to understand the uh, parad parabolic usage of symbolic forms. <clears throat> so uh, to start with uh, the Heart Sutra, which I think is, represents, I would say, the most sublime essence of spiritual wisdom put into the most brief form one could without uh, really employing metaphors, except to the extent that uh, language is inherently metaphoric. So, so I would put that on the most sublime polarity, whereas the game of pool, I would say, is in the most profane polarity of life. But I don't know if, if you grew up in the same kind of uh, environment I did, but the rich people all had pool tables. You know, the, the, the upper middle class had them in their basement, but the ones who had palaces all had a billiard room, right? And, uh, and of course, the men went to the billiard room after dinner. The women weren't invited and uh, would drink port and smoke cigars and, uh, and you know, queue up and, and play pool. <laughs> So uh, pool was a very important game for the uh, aristocracy for a long time, right? Now, why would a game like that, which is a relatively stupid game, it's worse than golf, really, you know, you don't even get any exercise. It, it certainly doesn't involve the skill of ping pong, you know, but still, you, you have an archetypal form here that has endured for a very long time. So, uh, this, it's a very interesting symbolic form, and what I, I, I would like to present is that it is the actual corresponding equivalent to the Heart Sutra. Now, when the, the game of pool started, of course, it didn't start as pool, and, and billiards was first, but billiards was a game played originally outdoors, which is why when they brought it indoors and put it on a flat plane, they made it green so for the grass, right? Because they played it out on the grass. And it was like croquet. You'd hit it with a mallet or a mace, a ball, and, uh, and you'd have to get it through a labyrinth, et cetera. You know, croquet is a, a derivative of that uh, ancient form of billiards. But there was one form that differed from the others, which was invented by the French of course, naturally, and they called their form poulet, okay? Poulet in French means a chicken, right? Pollo. Well, what they did was they hit the ball toward a chicken walking on the grass, and if you could hit it, then you'd say, ah, poulet! No, you won, right? <laughs> and of course, the chicken is watching out trying to get away from these balls that are hitting it. Uh, so... It seems like a ridiculous game that they played in these rich uh, outdoor you know, courtyards and palaces, but that's what they did on the lawns in those days. 
so in any case, one day they brought it in, I guess for rainy season, and they put it on this, this board. Well, if you think about the game, uh, first of all, when you use the billiard balls uh, to start the game, you put them in a triangle, right? You, you have to set them. Now, what is a triangle? It's a folded up diamond form. You remember recently I spoke about the diamond mind of desire, right? Well, if you can think of the diamond folded over, it becomes a triangle, which is a pyramid form. And that pyramid then is made up of two kinds of spheres. There are the solids and the stripes. Right, And you are uh, one side or the other, and the one who uh, is uh, permitted to go first, and there's, of course, some uh, uh, competition to decide who is able to, to go first based on uh, who can get the white cue ball uh, closer to the back bank, et cetera. There's a whole uh, uh, you know, art of the, the foreplay of pool. But in any case, uh, if you have the right to, to shoot the cue ball, the white one, into the top of the pyramid, then you decide the breaks, right? That's, that's how the game is broken. And, and if you do it uh, with great deal of skill, you can get the balls to break in a certain way that then when you take your, your shot, you'll be able to get all the balls uh, of your type, the, either the stripes or the solids, into the pockets first, right? So what's the point of the game? To make your spheres disappear first. Okay, it's a game of disappearance. Okay, and the, and to make the, the the balls disappear, you have to have a white ball. And isn't white light what causes all the colored lights to disappear into it? Right, they are all derivative aspects of a spectrum. Interestingly, in terms of uh, cosmoplasticity, the color purple doesn't actually exist. If you look at the line of the spectrum of visible light, you have infrared on one end and ultraviolet on the other end. The two do not meet, but the human consciousness can cause them to come together and then the red and the violet create purple. But purple doesn't actually exist as a vibrational frequency out there. It's entirely made up by consciousness which is just sort of one clue because all of it is really made up of consciousness. But in any case, that's enough for the, the pool table. Now let's go back to the Heart Sutra because uh, it, what's important now is to see the congruences that are existing now at a different uh, quantum level. And remember, the world being a fractal hologram means there is self-similarity at every scale, right? So we're dealing with two different scales of understanding that are both pointing at a similar theme that is actually an instruction on how to disappear, okay? Which is a very important skill to have. Although most people are terrified of it, right? Why is there a fear of death? You don't want to disappear. And why is spirituality about dying while alive if it's not about disappearing? but disappearing while still appearing. You see the paradox of it. You can only disappear while you are still apparently present. So the Heart Sutra. I'm using Red Pine's translation. I love Red Pine. He's one of, I think, the, the great contemporary sages, uh, very, uh, very humble and low key with a great sense of humor, but a very accurate uh, translator. So let's just read the first line of it. The noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, while practicing the deep practice of Pragyaparamita, which is the perfection of wisdom, looked upon the five skandhas, which you could say are the five elements, the five aspects of, of what elements of the world, uh, ingredients, you could say, and seeing that they were empty of self-existence, said, here, Shariputra, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not separate from form. Form is not separate from emptiness. Whatever is form is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness is form. Same holds for sensation and perception, memory and consciousness. Okay, so let's just stop right there. 
we have an equivalence, emptiness, form. But before we get there, let's talk about this first line, the noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. That line in itself is very strange to most Buddhists because most Buddhists would say, wait a minute, Avalokiteshvara is not a Bodhisattva. He's a Buddha. And others would say he's God. He's a, he's a God. Uh, but he is the, he and, and, and in China, of course, he was turned into a she, Guan Yin, the same, same deity, but in feminine form, the Buddha of compassion. And they say the Dalai Lama is an incarnation of the Buddha of compassion, etc. So there's a big debate within Buddhism, a very unsettled and unsettling debate that separates different Buddhists from each other uh, in, in very important ways. Some saying uh, he's a, a Buddha and some saying he's a Bodhisattva. Which is he, you see? And it's the undecidability and the indeterminacy of that point that is key for understanding yourself. The same, uh, the same debate uh, goes on, of course, in Christianity, although in Christianity <clears throat> the... Uh, all the, the really good heresies were wiped out, uh, you know, the Gnostics and then the, uh, uh, the ones in the Middle Ages, the Bogomils and the Cathars and, and all of those. So we, we hardly have any really juicy forms of Christianity left, you know, in the same way that the apples that we have less, these so-called delicious apples are the worst, you know, possible variety of apples, but that's what you get. So you get the worst variety of religions, but, but within Christianity, there were so many incredibly interesting varieties, and there was one form of Christianity in which the question of, was Jesus God or was he man? Is he half God and half man? Is one from the waist up and the waist down? You know, uh, and uh, is, he, uh, uh, is he simply uh, an avatar? Is he the only avatar? And there was one form of Christianity called docetism, which says none, none of that is true. Uh, Jesus was not a human being at all, but nor was he a god. The docetists, and this was like, you know, what, 500 AD, uh, said, no, Jesus is a hologram. Really, they said he wasn't really here. He seemed to be here. He was a holographic image uh, created by uh, the guy who runs the hologram, uh, but, uh, but he was a representation, an icon. Okay, now I think that's a very interesting uh, religious view. But if you take that further, then isn't it the case that all of us are holograms, right? Now, have you come to terms with the fact that you exist only as a hologram in this plane? And, you, and as a hologram, <clears throat> there's the question of, are you the icon or are you the player who is using your icon? Because isn't that the difference between the Bodhisattva and the Buddha? Who are you? The Bodhisattva is the icon that indeed can uh, give the discourse of non-duality and understands it all intellectually, etc., but still understands it as if from an individual perspective. Like, I get it, I'm a know-it-all. That Bodhisattva is basically a know-it-all. Uh, but, but a humble know-it-all whose next step is to go from knowing it all to being it all. But still, there's a difference, right, between the Buddha and the Bodhisattva. In the same way that there's a difference between the son and the father in Christianity, and Christianity is another triangle that you, know, that you hit, and if you get the breaks right, then the Holy Spirit goes out and uh, into the pockets of everybody's mind at the end, right? So we, we have a game of pool that's being played uh, in various different ways. But you've got to disappear as the bodhisattva in order to appear as the Buddha, but the Buddha never appears. The Buddha is non-arising. But the non-arising, the emptiness, turns out to be form. So can the Buddha really be anything but the bodhisattva? Is the icon different from the player? Okay. So now I want to get into a little more of the logic of it. I made a little diagram on the way here. 
maybe I'll write a few things. Okay, so I've written uh, two sentences. We'll just start with that. <clears throat> the first sentence, of course, says emptiness is non-difference. That's our definition of, of emptiness. It is non-difference. And then the second sen sentence says the principle of sameness. Are those two sentences equivalent? Emptiness is non-difference. So when you bring your mind into a state of emptiness, which means you have uh, stopped the flow of conceptual thought, then you are in a state where your perception will not uh, pick up differences between uh, moments of perception. You will not divide the world into linear time or into separation of objects. In the, in the emptiness way of perceiving, there is uh, simply no difference spatially, temporally, or conceptually. Now, what is the principle of sameness? The principle of sameness is that there is no difference. There are no differences. Everything is the same. All is one, right? Are, are those two statements equivalent? How many people think they are equivalent? How many people think they're not equivalent? Nobody, there were some who didn't answer either way. They're not equivalent. Yes, go ahead. Only because of the words that are used, like to say that it's a principle is to suggest that it's a microphone. Yeah. Where's the mic? I think it's the, the words that are used that makes me think that they're different. Emptiness is like non-existence or just being, it just is. And to be a principle of sameness is that it's representing something. Exactly, bingo. Okay, this This is the difference between two different philosophies of non-duality that are referred to as Advaita and Advaya. And although the Buddhists tend to speak more about emptiness, in fact, shunyata is in both the forms, although Shiva and Shunya are equivalent, for the Buddhists, the shunyata and nirvana are the the equivalence, but Advaya uh, is the, the principle of discourse in which you cannot assert that uh, anything uh, is definite. You can't say that the self is either a self or a not self. You can't say that it is either absolutely nothingness, complete non-existence, or it's e an eternal something. You can't say either one. That's the madhyamaka, right? The middle way. Uh, but you can't really make any definite claim about reality. 
and, and at the same time, the Advaita said, the reason you can't make a claim is that there is no difference in reality. So it's not just a matter of discourse. So they're not really differing because the discourse is representing what the Buddhists believe is real, but they are dealing with how do we speak about these things? How do we understand them? How do we intellectually uh, use our consciousness to reach the real that Advaita is speaking about? So it's about how you shift your consciousness to be in accord with, in resonance with, the true nature of the real. There was a, uh, a, a very great uh, logician in the early 20th century, uh, Gottlob Frege, who made a distinction between a Zin and Bedeutung. between sense and reference. Actually, I should have been written the other way, reference and sense, because uh, we, we are dealing with the, the logical sense that your understanding makes out of the hodgepodge of words that are spoken in a discourse and what uh, the, uh, the actual real that is attempting to be described is, right? So one, one question is how do you speak about the real and especially a real that is not apparent, is not visible, is not ob objective. And so because uh, consciousness itself is non-objective, if you want to understand consciousness that is not an object, you can't do it through ordinary uh, mental processes. And if we were to use a, a biblical uh, metaphoric example, we would say in the book of Genesis, very early on, we have the concept of tohu vavohu. The world is uh, unformed and empty, right? So there is no form and there is, there, there is emptiness. Now the Buddhists say there, the form itself is emptiness. So it's taking a, a different leap in logic. It's, it's saying, yes, emptiness means indeed that there is no form, but form is because an appearance within emptiness is nothing other than the emptiness. In the same way that we could say uh, the, uh, the, the whole universe uh, nowadays is understood to be information. If we look at these two sentences, we could say what this is expressing, emptiness is non-difference, is simply expressing zero. Whereas the principle of sameness is one. Because it's a positive principle. It's saying the real world that exists as a positivity is a radiant sameness. So zero and one, are they two or are they one? Are they, are they the same or are they different? The one is an expression of the zero, a representation of the zero, but that representation is nothing other than zero. So even though we have a binary code that is capable of creating the entire cosmos of information, because that's all it's made up of, all of this is binary code. That's, that's been proven. There is nothing other than that. And that binary code is simply zero and one. Do you have a question? Okay what information is? Oh, well, that's a very difficult, uh, that's very difficult, in fact. That's very advanced. Let me come back to that question. Uh, because, uh, first of all, it's a formation within, all right? So if we want to understand any formation, whether it's a mental formation, like a defense mechanism, or it's a formation that is a, a, an object within the field of nature, or some supernatural uh, form, an angelic form, an archon, whatever, 
uh, it has to begin as information. It begins as a, a form within consciousness that is projected. So we have information and exformation, okay? And the two are equivalent. Emptiness and form are the same. Okay, so we are, we are dealing with a binary code that the universe is made up of. If we want to break that code, then we have to understand how that binary operates and that it is actually a single reality. In the same way that, the, that this binary code creates the cosmos, first by producing a, a magnetic field. We can say the electromagnetic field is produced by the relative uh, polarities appearing in the same field of zero and one. In, in the, for the Taoist, it's yin and yang, right? Or it's male and female. That's, if you put a male and female together, you're going to get energy most of the time. Whereas you put two males together, you're not going to get much unless they want to fight, you know, or two females. But you put a male and a female, nowadays that may not be the case any longer because the gender of the information is different than the exformation. And so you, you may get phallic females and, uh, you know, very uh, effeminate males, etc. But if you're dealing just with the principles, then you're going to get a, a field of, uh, of, of desire, of, uh, of love, of energy, of power, a certain kind of uh, magical uh, passion, right? If in the right circumstances with the right polarities, uh, which is why procreation takes place, right? If it weren't for that energy, well, nobody would be interested in it. So you, you have a certain kind of electromagnetic force that is operating at the level of animal psychology, but that is fractally related to much higher levels of psychology and spirituality in terms of the ultimate uh, Shiva and Shakti polarities, which is what we're really talking about here. And each of us possesses within our consciousness both of these polarities of Shiva and Shakti. So, okay, enough for that, but, but the key uh, point here is that the, once you get the, uh, the field created, Brahman, then you're going to get within the field, you're going to get a, an etheric kind of, of substance, which is the energy of that relationality that begins to, to form and manifest. And then out of the, the etheric field, you will get plasma. And then out of plasma, you'll get the spiraling of galaxies, which are whirls that will appear within the field, right? In the same way that you get whirls and nodes of consciousness at every fractal level inside the galactic and inside the planetary and then inside the psychological. So you're going to get this, <clears throat> the multiplicity appearing within the unity which appears within the nothingness. But all of them are expressions of the same uh, power, of an absolute presence that cannot be described as either uh, present or absent, zero or one. But the combination of the paradoxical uni unity of the opposites produces all uh, forms that can be created as a result of those polarities. Okay. So at the next level, uh, you will get um, awareness and light uh, as your two polarities. Awareness is negative. It's the zero, right? I, your awareness doesn't show up in the world. What is positive, the one, is light. But does light ever appear without an awareness to whom it appears, right? So light and awareness are reciprocals in mathematical terms. You never have light without awareness. You never have awareness without light. Because as soon as you go beyond the light, then the awareness disappears into nothingness. 
So for any uh, manifestation, the first manifestation, if you read the Kashmir uh, Shaivites, it's uh, Prakasha, the light, and Vimarsha, the awareness. These two principles that emerge out of the, uh, the Paramashiva, the Absolute. And although sometimes we will speak of Shiva as being the zero point, but is zero really a point? No, it's not a point. The point is already one. You see, and though, all, though we talk about in meditation that you should be one-pointed, that's not actually true. That's a lower level because you've got to start somewhere. Uh, but in fact, zero-pointedness is what you want. But in zero-pointedness, there is no longer anyone meditating. The, the point is the I, right? And the I has to eliminate itself in order to reach the real uh, nature of zero. This is the difficulty in meditation. How do you eliminate yourself as the awareness of uh, not only the light, but of the awareness itself? So in India, the Shiv is, uh, is literally put as a point. When the, uh, the Muslims uh, conquered India, the Mughals, they used the Shiva Lingam, which as you see is an oval form. And so that oval became the, the symbol of zero in Western mathematics when they brought it to the West. And as soon as there was a zero, then suddenly mathematics grew into a very powerful form of logic that without the zero, it was useless because you couldn't uh, do too much with Roman numerals. Uh, it, was not, it was unwieldy to try to, uh, to multiply and divide and, and uh, do other more uh, complex operations with numbers if you didn't have zero. So in the West, the point became the decimal point. And so everything on one side of the decimal point is microcosm, and everything on the other side is macrocosm, whole numbers and fractions, right? So you've got, uh, you've, you've got two different quantum levels that are self-similar, but th that create two different infinities. So here we have the whole understanding of infinity of infinities, the transfinite numbers, which Georg Cantor brought out. Now, in mathematics, there was a continual explosion of more and more complex forms of mathematics because they began to add uh, negative numbers and they began to add not just fractions, but uh, uh, numbers that were uh, imaginary numbers and square roots of imaginary numbers and all kinds of operations that they could do that could then be applied ultimately to physics. And what we, we ended up having is a, a kind of physics that is almost entirely mathematical now rather than empirical or observational, which is why they can come up with... Uh, uh, basically absurd concepts that nobody can argue with because they have never been observed in reality, but mathematically they are necessary to support the equations, like dark matter, dark energy, right, which is now like 90-some percent of the universe according to physics, but nobody's ever seen any of it, right, uh, not even black holes. So, you know, we're dealing now with a religious viewpoint. But what happened after this explosion, because everything is a diamond, you have the explosion and then you begin to have the contraction. Uh, in, uh, in the 20th century, Kurt Gödel proved that any form of mathematics is inadequate. It will always lead to a failure point. It's incomplete and inconsistent, or and or. So there will always be questions you cannot answer. Now this was a huge a stroke uh, of a, almost a heart attack sutra to the physicists who uh, now could not claim to have any knowledge of reality because there were, there were questions they could not answer with their most powerful abstract instrument of mathematical logic <clears throat> they could not figure out uh, reality so <clears throat> The problem of mathematics is, although you can uh, expand it uh, to infinity, perhaps, it, there, you will never be able to get out of it, and that infinity will always uh, have some missing element. 
and it will also have within it some elements that refer to that which is beyond it, but, but are not in fact beyond it. So there will always be some elements within the field that will point to a logic beyond itself. <clears throat> so for example, Gödel's proof is a mathematical proof of the inadequacy of mathematics, okay? So it required a very complex form of mathematical thought to recognize the limitations of mathematical thought. So now we have to do the same in regard to ego consciousness. We have to have a Gödelian critique from a higher platform of consciousness that is infinite and that can contain the infinity of infinities of uh, possible appearing forms that all appear that are nonetheless within the jurisdiction of nothingness or emptiness. Okay, let me go on. I may have to do some erasing. Can you do some erasing? Yeah, thank you. So once you have the uh, understanding that the sentence, the zero sentence, and the one sentence are different, not the same, as Yogi Raj said, then you have one plus one, which yields two. And then you can get three and four and five. So you get now an entire mathematical system, but all that entire system is simply signifiers of zero, ultimately. That's all. Different forms in which the zeroness appears as form. <clears throat> and remember, the zeroness is consciousness. It's nothing but your mind, because the world is nothing but your mind. Okay. From there we get the next stage, which is awareness produces idea. And the light manifests as form. So they are equivalents, form and idea. People wonder sometimes, where do ideas come from? <clears throat> In fact, the mathematicians have been debating among themselves is mathematics invented or is it discovered? Uh, is mathematics simply uh, the way the world is put together and God's a mathematician and voila, there we are. We have mathematics uh, that somehow corresponds to reality and we can use it to, to uh, build technological uh, instruments and uh, bombs and everything else using these <laughs> mathematical equations. Or, or is it invented? But if it is invented, then where do, does the idea come from? Where, how is it that some geniuses can download incredible ideas and other people barely get an idea in their whole life? And some people get <clears throat> ideas that are pretty mundane and other people will get ideas that are aesthetic or ethical, but they're not gonna get any like major ideas of a world-shattering or, or, or game-changing variety. And some people will get ideas that are so astounding that they can literally change history. <clears throat> Where do the ideas come from? 
They come from the zero. All ideas. But <clears throat> the further you go away from the zero, the more ridiculous your ideas become. <laughs> the more they come out of a fantasy mode of, uh, of imaginary thinking that's produced by an ego that's living in a much lower level of consciousness than the absolute. <clears throat> but the great thinkers, the great composers, the great philosophers, the great mathematicians, they get their ideas in meditative states where they download them. So if you want to download ideas that have power, you want to be listening for the word of God to come from the silence, from the emptiness. If you're not listening, you're not going to get it. And, and if you get it but don't know how to translate it, because it's not going to come in words, it's going to come as a vibrational frequency that will need to be translated into symbolic forms. <clears throat> Which is why you have to have idea and form, truth and beauty, satyam shivam sundaram, right? From shivam you get both satyam and sundaram, truth and beauty. So, Okay, so if we see how the, uh, these th this primary uh, archetypal forms evolve, the idea or truth becomes wisdom, which is the way you apply truth to the world <clears throat> to make it coherent. You apply the wisdom to the form, and that's uh, the use of creativity, which is the intermixing of these two sides, and, and, and this will produce will, the wisdom and the joy that comes of intelligence that is uh, producing coherence, but only if it is a will to serve, to serve the whole, to bring uh, a joy to all, because the emptiness includes all. And if you're only bringing joy to one little particle and everybody else can go to hell, you're not going to get any very deep ideas. You're not going to get any deep joy either. And so it's only through the service, that, and that means you have to have love and law as equal polarities, the dharma as well as the prema. And if you have those two, then the will to serve, what, what would be the greatest service you can do? Turn the world from a hell into a heaven. Bring back a paradise. Right? What else would you want to do with your intelligence? You may want to leave it behind and be in the zero, in the absolute, in the emptiness, but then again, isn't the emptiness form? And so if that's the case, don't you want to be in a world that's the most beautiful world you could be in? Why would you want to be in an ugly one? But in order to be able to accomplish that, you have to create a quantum supercomputer. Voila, the purpose of religion, okay? So then we have to understand what is the difference between a regular computer and a quantum computer? Does anyone know? Superposition. <clears throat> Superposition, exactly. In other words, a, a regular computer uh, uses the binary code. This is either a zero or a one. But for the quantum computer, it is both zero and one simultaneously. 
Okay, and that superposition, although you would think, well, doesn't that create incoherence? No, it creates infinite possibilities. And you cannot determine if anyone here is a bodhisattva or a Buddha. Okay, and so if you have the power then of manifestation of any possibility, because all possibilities are superimposed as potentially actualizable in any moment, then you can bring anything into manifestation from gods to Godzilla. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and they're both going to appear very soon, you know. Uh, those alligators are going to morph, you know. So uh, we're going to uh, deal with uh, all of the possibilities of archetypal imagination becoming manifestable once the consciousness is able to laser-like uh, move into that absolute superposition of all possibilities and break it like the, the cue ball breaks uh, the pyramid and the light breaks in, right? Wherever there's a crack, the light breaks in and that light is going to bring uh, a new world into being as a result of the breaking apart of these polarities of the stripes and solids. Voila. Okay, so now back to the Heart Sutra. Because, you know, this is where we're getting our information from. I'll go back to... Uh... Okay, so, therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness there's no form, no sensation, no perception, no memory, and no consciousness. Okay, so here we're given the recipe. This is how you do it. You want to create a quantum supercomputer... Get rid of sensation, perception, memory, and consciousness. Wipe them out. Have a consciousness that's free of all of that. It's not even consciousness anymore. It's emptiness that is non-difference, all right? No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. No shape, no sound, no smell, no taste, no feeling, no thought. All right? Wipe it all out. All of that is detritus that uh, constricts your ability to recreate, right? You want a tabula rasa. Erase the, whatever you've written on your, uh, your tablets of destiny and, uh, and open them up so that a new destiny can be written, right? Maktub. No element of perception from eye to conceptual consciousness, no causal link, this is an important sentence, no causal link from ignorance to old age and death. Uh, there, there's no reason why uh, one has to lead to the other. And no end of causal link from ignorance to old age and death. No suffering. Okay, the first noble truths, right, were you're suffering, the reason you're suffering is that there's... Uh, <laughs> There's thirst, there's desire, we can get you to nirvana if you'll give up the desire, just follow the eightfold path, this is the way, right? Well, here is the, the total inversion of that, original Buddhist teaching. This is another turning of the wheel of the Dharma, and he's saying no suffering, no source of suffering, no relief, no path, okay? You're there, you're there already, there's nothing to do, right? Buddhism is obsolete. Okay, this, is, this completes it already. Uh, no knowledge, no attainment, and no non-attainment. Okay? You have to have both no attainment and no non-attainment. Therefore, Shariputra, without attainment, bodhisattvas take refuge in the pragyaparamita, this wisdom, the wisdom of all of this, and live without walls of the mind. Okay. Does your mind contain walls? Many people have dreams that they're walking along walls, usually walls of a castle or a bastion, right? Those walls are the symbol of the ego that does not permit you to have infinite consciousness. It stops you in your tracks. So, no walls in the mind. Without walls of the mind and thus without fears. No walls, no fears. The wall creates the fear. What's on the other side of the wall, right? Remember the end of the baron, open the gates. Get rid of the walls. And then you'll see there's no enemy. If you have a wall, you have an enemy. The enemy is the unknown. 
It's the negative projection. That's the crocodile. Okay, therefore, <clears throat> let's see, where did I end up? Okay, without walls of the mind and thus without fears, they see through delusions, and finally, nirvana. In other words, you will see through nirvana. Even nirvana is an illusion, right? Nirvana was the big prize for the Buddhists in the Hinayana phase. And now they're saying, wait a minute, nirvana is just, we didn't mean it, you know? We wanted to motivate you to, to meditate. So we said, yeah, you'll get to nirvana, you'll get out of here, you know, freedom, uh-uh, sorry, ah, doesn't work that way. So uh, there, there is no nirvana, sorry folks. So, so much for Buddhists, uh, right? But this is Buddhism, okay. So all Buddhas, past, present, and future, also take refuge in Pragya Paramita. But of course, are there any Buddhas of the past or the future? Isn't the past and the future just your projection? If there's a Buddha, can it be anyone but you? Right? If you see a Buddha on the road, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, there ain't no Buddhas on the road except your projection of the self. Don't project. Okay. And, and realize unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. The Sanskrit would be Samyak Sambodhi, right? We have a bhavan of that name. Samyak, it's actually fully as Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Anuttara is the unexcelled. That was the originally the, uh, one of the names of Shiva. That's what you, you attain, unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. You should therefore know the great mantra, the great mantra, of Pragya Paramita, the mantra of great magic, the unexcelled mantra, the mantra equal to the unequaled, which heals all suffering and is true, not false. Very interesting. He has to emphasize that. Here's one case where true and false are not polar opposites that are equal. I don't think that's the case. I think it's both true and false. Okay, and I'll prove it to you. But, <laughs> mantra. Man means mind, all right? We know that. And tra is from uh, meaning a protection of the mind or the ability to transport the mind to other dimensions. But in Sanskrit, a mantri is an advisor, a minister. The word minister comes from mantri. A prime minister, right, is the chief advisor to the king or the queen, right? So the mantri is the one who is able to give the mantra. So the mantra is the advice or the instruction as to how to reach unexcelled enlightenment. The mantra in Pragya Paramita is spoken thus. Okay, so you know, here's the punchline of the Heart Sutra. This is it, the treasure you've all been waiting for that will bring you to perfect enlightenment, right? How, what's it worth to you? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have copyright on this, so uh, no royalties come to me. But here it is. Are you ready for this now? Take notes. Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhi, swaha. Now that's self-explanatory, isn't it? Okay. Gate. Very interesting word, gate. And, and he's giving it in the Sanskrit, and he's not translating it. Thanks, Red Pine. The one sentence that we needed translated, you know, uh, it's not there, right? He does give a commentary. I'll, I'll give him credit at the end of the book, but it's not of that much help. Okay. But you can understand it very easily if you can play the game of pool. Gate is, uh, it comes from another term in, that's used in Buddhism called the tathagata, tathagata, uh, which is another word for the Buddha. All right? And so the word gate and gata come from the same. And the way it's generally translated in the context of the Heart Sutra is it means gone, disappeared. Gate, gate, you're gone gone, okay? 
What is that? Why twice? You're gone not only physically but mentally. Gone, gone. But then paragate, you're completely gone. Okay? Meaning not even an I thought is left. Not a world, nothing. You've got to be so completely gone that, that, that there, you're a goner with no way back. All right? <laughs> and then parasamgate, not only are you completely gone, but you never were. You understand? You never existed even to be gone. That's bodhi. That's the Buddha nature. Swaha. Right? <laughs> it's over. There's nothing left. You understand? Punto. Uh, that's what you have to get to. Gone, gone, gone. But here's, here's the point that I want to say why that's inadequate. Because if you go to ask what is the meaning of tatagata, tatagata, they will say it can mean thus gone, but it can also mean thus come. Right? To use a Talmudic pilpul, uh, it's the opposite. This is the way, if you go to a yeshiva, this is the way they'll argue, yes, it's like that, but actually it's like this. All right. So what you have to understand is you're not just gone, you've arrived. That's what it means to get here. Why is the Buddha an avatar? Why is the principle of the sameness the same as the nothingness? Okay? So our problem is we haven't got here yet. We're in this middle limbo in which we're not here and we're not gone. Right? So it's worthless. It's not, it's not neither here nor there. We have to be completely gone in order to be completely here. And when we're completely here, we're here as gods. And that's when, watch out, because we become a network of superintelligences that form a supercomputer within the phenomenal plane. That's our purpose. Namaste. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.